Making a double on $200 million is way harder than a 4X on $20 million. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. This next guest is the dynamic president and CEO of Valchi Capital Group. It's a financial powerhouse with an unbeatable track record. Armed with over eight years of experience in raising capital, he has achieved remarkable success in oil and gas, private real estate, ESG, and re- renewable infrastructure sectors. He's a graduate of the prestigious University of Georgia. He brings a blend of financial expertise and a passion for finance to his work. When he's not busy connecting investors with the best opportunities, you find him fearlessly conquering the stock market as an equity options trader. Buckle up for this thrilling financial journey with my next guest, the one and only Andrew D. Moroli. How you doing today, Andrew? Hey, everybody. How are you? I'm doing great, Christian. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here. Man, I'm looking forward to this conversation because, you know, when when I was looking at LinkedIn and, you know, looking at your profile, I was like, man, I, I need to have this guest on because not only are you curated in regards to like your, your LPs and and the relationships and the deal flow, but you are very, very specific on who you're working with and making sure that there's an underwriting. You kind of underwrite them a little bit and have this high bar and criteria. But before we dive into all that fun stuff, man, how did you get into, you, you've been capital raising and placement and building an amazing network with a lot of LPs. How did you get involved from that, from the financial world, my man? Well, it all starts, um, it all started as a Chick-fil-A employee back in the day, <laughs> frying up chicken, getting my, my fingers caught, grinding the lemons. And it was a point where I had graduated college. I was back at my high school job working at Chick-fil-A and things were not going the way that I thought they would. Uh, my best friend had died, which is the, the namesake of Valsi Capital Group. Uh, his name was Caleb Lucas Valsi. And so I was just in this weird spot and I decided, you know what, I'm no longer afraid of failure. My, my father always said, you can either fear regret or you can fear failure. And when I was a senior in college, I took the Series 7 exam before I had graduated and I failed by like 13 points. And it really kind of disrupted my plans. I was going to graduate and go into sales. And, and I failed until like nine months later, I found myself back at my high school job saying my pleasure to some kids that I had gone to high school with. And it was one of those like gut-wrenching moments where I'm like, you know what? I would rather fear regret more than failure. And so it was that point where I said, okay, I'm not afraid to fail the Series 7 again. Let's get a job doing that. I'll move anywhere in the country. I called my dad. I go, He was a, a new young financial advisor at the time. I said, give me the phone numbers to all of your wholesalers. Everybody's selling you product. I want to call them. And so I called these guys up one by one. You know, who, who hires an unlicensed guy in finance? And I'll move wherever. And I found a buyer that was open to hire me. And they were in Newport Beach, California, which happens to be like one of the most beautiful places in our country, which I didn't know about uh, having grown up in Georgia. And so I moved across the country and I started in finance as an internal sales guy quickly grew up the chain there. Um, and that's that's really where I got my start. So we're many lily pads later, but uh, it all started from rejecting the fear of regret and saying, I'm not afraid to fail. Let's jump back in and, and give it a second try. That's an incredible story. And like you said, I mean, it all started in Chick-fil-A, but also that <laughs> amazing wisdom from your dad uh, and, you know, really just taking that to heart, you know, and actually yeah. listening. But I want to dive into just a little bit in regards to what you mentioned in regards to your friend um, yeah. and where there was that, that situation that happened. And how did you interpret that situation? Uh, he was very close to you. Uh, and what, what did that feel like going through that and how to make sure that you maximize your life and what were some of the realizations that that were unpacked yeah. during that? Honestly, Christian, it was a it was a pretty momentous point in my life. Prior to that, I and we had lived together my senior year of college, so like we were six months off of living together uh, as roommates. Um, like a lot of young men, I was plagued by the defining myself by what other people think of me for many many years, and so. I, I was with it. I mean, my, my dad was an Air Force pilot for a long time. So when I was in my primitive years, we moved a lot. So I never had a core group of friends. And that was like a big hole in my heart of like, 
you know, where's my friend group? And so Caleb and I became close and then got even closer when I was in, in college. And frankly, a lot of my identity had become Caleb's best friend. And that was where I, he was way cooler than I was. I was kind of a nerd in school and, but we were buddies and, and that, that quickly became a defining factor of, well, who is Andrew Maroli? I'm Caleb's best friend, right? And so this identity began to be built in that. Um, I had thought to myself prior to him passing away, he overdosed on barbiturates and I had known he had a problem. And part of me said to myself one day when we were roommates senior year, man, if Caleb died, I wouldn't be able to make it. Like that would break me. And I specifically remember that. And then, you know, call it a year later, I get a phone call and, you know, so what it did was it, it, it totally shattered my core identity because now this thing, this person that I had identified as, well, this is who I am. I'm Caleb's best friend. Didn't exist anymore. And so it was, I, I described it almost as like a snow globe, like everything is up in the air. So if I change the environment in which everything falls down, who cares, right? Everything's already up in the air. And so from that point on, it really led to this like lack of fear because I had already gone through something that I thought would break me and it didn't. And so I started trading options. I started a career in sales. I started having, you know, let's try to start a couple businesses. And it, all of a sudden, like the big scary what if didn't exist anymore because I had already gone through that. And so as a really, I mean, 22, 23 year old young man, like there was this air of confidence of like, you know what, screw it. I can get through anything because I had already gone through what I had verbally said to myself would break me. Um, mm. And so years later, when I finally get a six month, you know, I had tried many at bats to get a business started from a tow truck business to a consulting firm to all kinds of stuff just because I love, I love business and how like the idea of making money doing something fascinates me. Um, and so when I finally got one off the ground and I sent my first invoice that got filled, I'm thinking, okay, well, I got to come up with a name for this thing. And so Valsi Capital Group, Valsi Consulting Group was a really nice homage and segue back to uh, not being afraid of, of getting out there, trying stuff. Um, so it was a huge turning point in my life that really led to um what has been an incredible 10 years and um yeah so that's uh that's what it's i mean it was it was big but uh it it pushed me it pushed me towards that lack of fear of failure because it was like you've been through something that would break you and you haven't broken so you know throw, what else do you have to throw at me world <laughs> I love what I love what you said, where you start realizing the worst case situ situation and you've been through the worst case situation and then you were able to bounce back and you start realizing this realization for yourself. You're like, OK, I can take more than I than I expect. And I, and, you know, acknowledge when you're I want to dive into the identity side of things real quick before we dive into the financial fun things here. But the identity I always found very interesting because, like you mentioned, men and women, you know, we unconsciously or consciously tie our identity into certain things, right? Whether it's a job, whether it's motherhood, whether it's, you know, X, Y, Z, right? And in your situation, it was, hey, I'm Caleb's friend, right? And that was your identity. That was who you are. So did you, during this time when all this was happening, how did you, was that a conscious awareness that it was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that this was my identity and I was you know, unconsciously doing this or did it just become like, okay, I have to, I have to figure this out a little bit. And did you lose yourself a little bit? And then, you know, how, how did you get back to understanding who you were, you know, as and building that self-esteem, self-confidence and your identity uh, in, in the proper manner? What, what did that look like? It, it didn't. I wasn't aware of it until how distraught that I was. And then it was like, dude, like, why, why is this so heartbreaking to you and so disruptive to your life? Um, that's when it really began to be clear of like, and probably a couple of years later, um, where that became like clear of like, okay, well, this is really what you're identifying yourself of. It forced me into, um, a few dark years of just leaning into the chameleon 
as a sales guy, a lot of us are naturally good at being a chameleon and shaping into who do you want me to be? I'll become that person. And that had been where I felt safe growing up. If you want me to be, you know, the the nerd, you want to be the football jock, you want to be the church kid, like whatever you want me to be, I will like morph into that, which leads to all kinds of negative things. Positive would be, well, you're probably pretty good at sales, right? Um, but it turned into, okay, let's move to California, get plugged in with a new group of friends. And I continued to lose myself of identifying myself as, you know, the new guy or whatever you have it. Um, it wasn't, I mean, there wasn't like a rock bottom moment, but there was a point where it became a like, what are you doing? And who do you really want to be? Right. And so that's what it became a realization of you have been just kind of morphing and, and um, becoming the person that the person across from you wants you to be. What if you became who you really desire to be? Right. And so today I spend a lot of time on a daily basis crafting the mindset. Of who am I? Who will I become? Where will I be in 10 years? Uh, I'm a big proponent of the of the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It's a classic, and it talks about the power of desires and that our thoughts are very, very real and transmute into reality. And so now looking back on that, I can see where this progression of lack of identity and this progression of morphing and changing led to darkness and lack of, you know, fulfillment, really. Um, and so today, it's still something that I actively fight against. Like I have a clear vision of, you know, 2033, I'll be 40 years old. This is what I'll be worth. This is what I'll be doing. The house will look like this, like, because without that, it's very easy to slip into reactionary mode. And um, that gets you that gets you not where you want to go. Right. You just start floating through life kind of thing. So um, it forced me to really take the reins because without holding the reins, I saw where I got. Right. And I got to a place that was despair, drug use, you know, not doing the things that I should be doing and not happy with myself. And so to come out of that. And a very, I mean, as you can tell, I'm a very honest, open person, right? Um, and I think that that's really important to realize. There's another book that talks about the ability to know, like, what the worst version of yourself is. And I think it's from a, it's from a guy that was in Auschwitz and talked about the dichotomy between being a prisoner and being a guard. And how you could think, oh, I could never be a guard at uh, a concentration camp. But the fact is, like, that's a very gradual slope. And to be able to be in front of our worst self allows us to not become that self, right? And so if we're in front of our worst self, then we're able to say, okay, that's not going to be who I am. But I'm also recognizing that without taking active control, I'm going here, right? And so I think that's something that a lot of people choose not to do because it gets scary and yucky and, and things like that of saying, okay, this is, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I'm capable of some pretty horrible things. I'm also capable of some really incredible good, but I, I need to be aware of the two sides of the coin. And so it was that firsthand. It was a journey that led me down the path of realizing what I was capable of doing um, where that life would lead me and then saying, this is not what I want and slowly marching back. Yeah. And I, I love what you said, where you, you realize you can go the dark side as well as the good side. Right. And you right. have both inside of you, but you got to determine which one you're going to feed. And you're very intentional with that. And you chose that when you were in those, those dark situations where you were using, you know, substances and, and things like that. And, you know, you felt kind of those, you know, maybe depressed or whatever it may, may be. Did you have someone alongside you that helped you kind of get out of that, that pitfall during that time? Enter my wife. Um, so that is, you know, a, a beautiful love, long love story. Uh, my wife and I, we dated in college at the University of Georgia. Um, she's a, a, an incredible woman and a beautiful soul. But she is the one that really 
always saw the good in me from day one. Um, we dated in school. We broke up for many years. That time that Kayla passed, we were apart. I moved to California, we were apart. Uh, and I finally basically chased her down and, and won her back. Um, and then it was, you know, okay, like, hey, like, we're not putting up with this. Like, who are you going to be, really? And it gave me something to fight for. Um, very much so. So, yeah, a, a good woman in, in a man's life is is very important, in my opinion. And, um, yeah, so my wife, Marina, was was definitely alongside me that the way. And uh, uh, not in, like, a, you know, smack you upside, what are you doing? But more of, like, a this is not your best. You know, I love you for your best. Like, let's fight to be that man kind of thing, right? Um so yeah, she definitely had a uh, a good girl next to me helping me uh, get through that. Andrew, I want to dive into this real quick because you know right now, just on this other side, we'll, we'll dive into the financial fund stuff here very shortly. But I see a lot of macro things going on with you know alpha males and you know all these you know things with males and you know beta males and all this just this this back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. And this podcast really isn't about that, but I wanted to obviously mention this because you you you, you brought this up, but you had, it seems like a very authentic conversation with your wife, right? And it was, you know, and, and I'd love to dive into this a little bit uh, further, but it seems like she, because she loves you so much, she told you honestly, right? She didn't love you for who you are, but who you can become, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how did you as a man, even though that hurt probably, it was like, ooh, that kind of hurt. How did you interpret that in a positive way to say, okay, well, she means good in what she's saying because she sees something that I need to obviously, you know, expand on and and be intentional with. What did what did that feel like, and how did you, you know, obviously grow through that because you knew, you know, your wife was saying those things uh, in in a, in a in a loving manner. First of all, I would I would. I would say she did love me for who I was, right? And I think that started there, that it was, it wasn't, I love you for who you could be. It's, you know, I, I have hopes for who you can be and I see the potential in you, like, but I love you where you're at kind of thing, right? And so I think there's a lot to be said about um, the safety that comes with a healthy relationship or a healthy marriage. We do, I mean, to this day, we have, very realistic, honest conversations about all kinds of stuff. And I think communication for anybody that's in a, a burgeoning relationship or a 20, 30 year old marriage, like communication is the core of all of that. And it's so easy to, when we get into fights to kind of lean away from each other versus lean in. And we always talk about that. Uh, my wife and I are saying like, let's lean in to each other versus pulling away. Um, so I think that's that's a main point there. Um, there's also something to, to be said about, like, believing who you could become, right? Like, none of us want to be a slave to addiction or whether that's drug use or pornography or any of the things that are afflicting young men these days. Like, we all have a desire, I think, in the, our, our heart to be strong warriors as we have been for thousands of years right and so to to harness that and to lean into like what am i truly capable of to have someone that is encouraging you and saying i believe in what you're capable of i have bigger dreams for you than you let's get your dreams bigger kind of thing uh it was more of a more of a symbiotic relationship like that than a you know clean up the act kind of thing. Um, it was more so, I love you where you're at. I see you. Um, you know, pain and trauma looks very different for a lot of people, and, and I'm not immune to that. And so to have someone that appreciates and sees you for who you are, but then also, you know, wants to see the best out of you is uh, is kind of that happy medium. You know, I'm, I'm, I appreciate the context and I appreciate also just building that foundation for our audience as well. And uh, I, I love that perspective. Now, I want to dive into a little bit of your deal flow here because I found this very interesting. I mean, coming from an options trader, you know, global markets, then working very closely with a lot of family offices, high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals. And you, out of all the deal flow, and this is what I found interesting is a lot of 
I shouldn't say a lot, but I, I've noticed a lot of people, they, you know, everybody's looking for money right now. And you, as a, as a, someone that has the, the Rolodex and the context and the relationships you built, you have to be very curated, right? You may have to be very intentional in regards to which one you're going to, you know, partner with in regards to a founder or, you know, pitch deck or whatever it is, and, you know, bring it to your Rolodex and say, Hey guys, this is, you know, a company I I'm looking at looks solid, you know, proof of concept, defensible moat, et cetera, like whatever your investor is looking for. Um, first of all, let's dive into the deal flow, right? How do you determine, what are you looking for? I know you mentioned clean and sustainable infrastructure. That's kind of where your heart's at and, you know, specific C to series C and then kind of a front approach as well as ESG kind of uh, atmosphere, like I mentioned. So, but that, that can, you know, that, those are broad umbrellas a little bit. Sure. And, and so even within that getting micro, I would imagine you do a lot of due diligence and saying, Hey, you know what, you're, you've got a high standard on what you're looking for to really present it to your investors and LPs. So let's kind of dive in, Andrew, how do you approach those conversations, those, those pitch decks, those deal flow to make sure that you're only bringing the best of the best to your, to your LPs? Well, Christian, I, I think it's, I think there's two ways to think about deals. I think there's one way that says, um, I want as many deals as I can get to show to people that I have true deal flow. A lot of people believe in this. They say, look, I'm valued because of my deal flow. I'll match if people like it. Great. You know, here's the menu kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. The other aspect is to say, I'm only going to represent the AAA top shelf managers. And if you don't like it, that's cool. I'll move on. Right. I'm more of a traditional sales guy. I think people that come from family offices that come from the allocator side value the deal flow and a menu of that, because it's all about how, how many deals you look at, you'll find a good one. As a sales guy, uh, you're gonna have a very short life as a salesman if you're selling something that's not great, right? And so from that aspect, it's like, I only wanna sell triple A top shelf stuff because that's what I've become known for. Uh, and so when it, I, you know, you look for a couple things, um, a, a, a excellent manager, I think is everything. And by the, that kind of falls into what's his, his or her background, what's the executive team look like, and most importantly, what is the character? Any of these funds within the legal docs that you sign, there's a way to screw you. I mean, if you really wanted to get to it, you could find a way to steal the money, or spend it in a way not, I mean, that's what it, so integrity above all else is what I look at. Who, who has a high standard of integrity, bar none period. And prior to bringing a deal to a family, that has to be tested out between me and the manager, right? And so there's little, little tests that you can do to kind of, okay, are you going to hold up your end of the bargain or, uh, you know, little little different things that you can use as a placement agent to say, is this person of high quality? Do they hold up their word on the little things? If they do, they're more likely to hold it. But if they don't hold their word on a tiny thing, psh, like there's no way that I trust you to hold your word up on a big thing. So integrity is far and above what I look at when I'm analyzing a manager. Um, I like to see an executive team that has great experience a lot of times it's good to have a Steve and a, you know, Steve Jobs and the Steve Wozniak, the two sides of the brain of saying, okay, here's the executive that's into the numbers, knows the deck, and here's the visionary. Uh, that's a nice combination to have, not necessarily all the time, but a lot of times in young funds or successful funds, you'll see these two sides of the coin um, that compared to one, I think offers a, a nice yin and yang for uh, for that. Background's hugely important, right? What have you done? Where are you coming from? The truth of the matter, Christian, is that there's like 11,700. This is summer of 2023. There's 11,700 currently registered private funds in the market. That is a lot of people saying, give me your money. I'll make more money with it. Like that's not a rare case. And so as, as an in-between person, a connector that, that stands in between the high net worth families of the United States and the unique deals that are here, 
it is my job to say, great, that's awesome, but how? Right? Prove it to me. Um, and so that can be done a lot of a lot of different ways. Uh, successful deals, closed deals, track record, all of that stuff are, are important. But that's kind of, I mean, everybody looks at that, right? Um, but I, I really think the intangibles of, of honesty and integrity, work ethic, too, is like, um, I think, big important. The third that I think is 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 kind of a an intangible in between is do they try and do everything? Like I don't want a manager that both finds deals, analyzes deals, and is good at selling. Like uh, I want you to not be like be a deal guy, right? Like in your specific area, whether it's clean infrastructure. Hey, all I do is infrastructure deals. This is all I do. Great. I'll handle the, the introductions for you. Or, hey, all I do is lower middle market credit lending. That's all we do. We've done it for three generations. Great. I don't want someone that says, I'm all over the place. I do this and this. And so I think specificity is a huge importance when, uh, like yesterday, I was with a guy that's looking to start a fund. He was talking about, I'm like, okay, so what do you want to have in it? He wants it to be an income fund. And he had like four or five different asset classes that he said that he was going to put in this fund. And I'm like, I'm going to be honest with you, man. Like I would pick one, maybe two mm. that you can, because the truth of the matter is you can't be great at everything. And so I like to see a manager that's very specific, narrow minded on how he's going to take money and make more money with it. Right. That's not a unique thing to say, but how are you going to do it? Um, integrity above all else and that needs to be tested before it's brought to families before it's brought to high-end investors to say no look i've sniffed this guy up and down i've tested him on his integrity he's come through you know he fulfills his word i really do think that this is a good place for your money um for someone that's in my position i find that i get the most success when i'm specific when i say and this is actually, I went to a, um, it was like a career fair. I obviously don't need a job, but there was also a portion for a mentoring section within this career fair. I'm like, so something about myself, Christian, is I believe that I can learn something from everyone. Like whether it is the guy working on my house or the CEO or the bus driver, like whether it's about the Mets or the, you know, anything like I can learn something from everyone. And I think that that is something that more entrepreneurs have than not. And that people that desire to be entrepreneurs or desire to be successful, there's a, there's a point of pride that comes in. There's a, I don't, you know, but if you really have the humility to say, I can learn something from everyone, like that is, is a massive piece of, of everything. And so uh, those are those are some of the things that I look at uh, when I'm analyzing the fund. Man, that is that is really really good. And in regards to, like the intangibles, I love what you said there because I, I'm so glad you didn't get into like the the KPIs and the underwriting and all the technical because that is so technical. But you know, over here it's and, and let me ask you this: when you are underwriting that founder or that fund manager, I should say, and they don't have integrity, right? There are certain red flags right off the bat, like in those small things, right? They mm -hmm. promise one thing and they they don't, you know whatever, for whatever reason, or they make excuses and you give them some grace, but obviously there's this continuance of that situation. Is that a hard no for you? Is that a hard pass right away? And even if they, they got like amazing other institutions that are, you know, deploying capital in, you know, very well known in, in that fund and all these other big players, you're like, nope, uh, you know, this is a hard yeah. no and it's a big red flag. What, what does that, what does that look like? It, it does. It's a, um, it's a quick no. I'm, I, I love the phrase that says a slow to hire, quick to fire. <laughs> and it's that idea of like, I'm very slow to trust someone, but very quick to cut the cord on somebody. Um, this happened with a manager, was a referral from a very high net worth individual. Hey, this guy's looking to start a fund. It's in oil and gas. Everything looked cool. We got into an engagement. I said, okay, great. Here's going to be the monthly retainer. Okay, handshake deal. I start prospecting for them. We get going. Well, 30 days later, I send an invoice and that invoice, oh, well, hold on, you know, a little. And that, that was the first like, okay, hold on. We agreed to something. I've worked for you. 
Now, I haven't closed money in 30 days, but there's been quite a bit of outreach. This is owed. Well, come on. Hey, no, we will. And that was a like huge red flag. And it's one of those like, hey, you know, peace be with you. Like, I'm, I'm gone, right? Like, because the beautiful part of being a placement agent or sitting in between high net worth individuals and these near 12,000 deals is that we can be agile. Like, I don't have to work for you. I, I don't have to sell your fund. And if you're not going to hold up your end of the deal on a small $5,000 retainer, then there's no way I can trust you to fulfill mm -hmm. what you say to investors. And if I put a family with you and you screw them, that I, I'll never, they'll never work with me again. And so it honestly is a very quick no. I am a, someone that is slow to hire and quick to fire. Yeah, and, and it's so it's so easy, definitely when when companies or high net worth individuals, you know, they look they look at the deal, it's sexy, maybe it's AI or whatever, and there's that one thing, it's like that one big red flag, and that has to, you know, and, and if they stick with their guns, I know Warren Buffett's very familiar with this as well. It might be defense, it might be all this stuff, but if they don't have integrity, just like you're saying, Andrew, boom, right off the bat, I'll pass, right? And yeah. and and the wealthy and the and the top level individuals, they're the ones that have that make the tough decisions and they may have up to the right trajectory, but at the end of the day, like you mentioned, you know, is it worth it? Right. Is it worth it? And uh, I appreciate explaining that. I want to talk a little bit about also um, when, you know, there are certain where there's first fund, second fund, third fund. And obviously, you know, I've, I've talked to some family offices and they only focus on, you know, second and third, because then that gives you some sort of like, you know, leverage of like, okay, Hey, where are they at? Okay. Have they been able to produce some results? Cool. Wonderful. Whatever. And you can kind of get some sort of metrics a little bit, kind of a heartbeat yeah. where they're at. However, though, also sometimes with those first funds, you may miss really great opportunities in internal rate of return as well. Right. So it's like a give and take. Uh, how do you, how do you think about it? Is it, is it very contextual just depending upon the situation, what that looks like, et cetera. Or, you know, how do you approach that first fund, first, you know, second fund, et cetera, with some of your family offices? Making a double on $200 million is way harder than a 4X on $20 million. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what happens is are, are your first fund, you're spot on of saying sometimes you miss out on, on big returns. It's because of the size of the deal, right? A lot of times your first funds are small. And they're designed to set the stage for a track record. If we're a manager and we want to launch a, you know, the Evans family of funds, we'll probably raise maybe five, maybe 10 million bucks, do whatever we want to do with it, get a 300% rate of return in return capital and, and set the clock so that in 10 years from now, we say, well, hey, here's our track record of the last six or seven funds our average return is 86% or what have you, heavily weighted from that first fund, right? So a lot of times first funds, while they do carry more risk, they do have more opportunity, right? So I totally get if a family says, look, we don't do any first time funds. I find that that is a easy rejection Right. Family offices are, are the pretty girl that, that everybody wants to date and they have to weed people out. Right. That's good. If they really like you, hey, it's my dad's kid and, you know, they have a great family. Why don't you go on a date with them? They'll look at it. Right. And you find that of saying if this is a bullseye for what a family is looking for, I love infrastructure or I love manufacturing credit deals. They're much more likely to look at a first time fund if it's the dead bullseye of what they look for, right? And so for other placement areas, I would say, don't be discouraged to bring a first-time fund to a family office. Emphasize the track record. Emphasize the, the management. If it's a first-time fund, they better have a rock star management team with you know decades of experience backing up this first-time founder, right? That helps mitigate the risk. If you have a founder that says, First time manager says, yeah, this is my first time fund, but I've got, you know, 90 years of experience on my on my bench and I don't do anything unless we unanimously agree. It's like, OK, you know, like that's a little bit mitigated of, you know, so, yeah, OK, it's a risk that you're a first time fund. But I feel a little bit more comfortable because you're not just, you know, a hot shot out of school kind of thing. Right. 
track record and background are huge for first-time fund managers, right? Hey, I came out of BlackRock. I was in BlackRock for a decade. I did 10 billion of transactions, and now I'm starting to fund. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's actually pretty interesting, right? Immediately, the background, the name recognition makes all the difference for folks. So um, I don't necessarily shy away from first-time funds. They, they, they require a higher level of diligence, obviously. Uh, personally, I like to work with first-time funds because I love the management teams, right? And we'll segue into a company that I've started that is really naturally come out of capital raising, which is where you have a fund, I bring an LP, a qualified LP to the call. They're very excited to hear about the opportunity. And then the first time fund manager gets up there and they start getting all in the detail. They talk for 30 minutes without giving the guy a break and you totally lose the LP and they're not interested anymore. So I started a company called Capital Catalyst, which specifically targets first time fund managers with less than 50, 50 million in AUM and six or less executives to train them on how to close LP capital more efficiently. I can't raise money for everyone, but I interact with deals on a weekly basis. So the goal is to say, look, I'm going to cherry pick just the tippy top best deals that I want to work with. Right now, it's like one, maybe two. But all of the other managers that I interact with, look, I'm great at what I do. I'm, I'm do I can do. I've been trained by some of the top Jerry Weissman. I went through his executive training course. He did like 150 roadshows in the 80s and 90s. Uh, he has a, a program called Suasive that was awesome. Um, so I basically take all of the sales skills and I train executives at these first-time funds how to close LP capital more efficiently. So I love working with CEOs and executives. It's a passion of mine because it goes back to that, like, they're entrepreneurs, right? They're doing something. They're in business in, in a unique way. I love that. They might not be the best thing for me to bring to my A-class, you know, family offices and clients, but I love working with them. They're really innovative people. I think that's what's amazing about the world that we live in today, especially in the U.S., but there's a lot of great deals that are happening in the U.K. or France or other places. Um, but some of the deals and managers that are first-time fund managers here in the U.S. have some really cool ideas. I'm not going to be the one to raise money for you necessarily, but I'd love to work with them and to help them be more effective at closing capital uh, on the first or second call. In other verticals and other services that you provide, which is really nice. And I'm so glad you brought that up in regards to the context of the first fund, uh, because, you know, I, I was talking numerous on my family and they only focus on fund two and fund three. And I understand their kind of institutional way of looking at it, but also you do miss um, a lot of it. And if you look, dive, you know, dive deeper into, you know, unpacking kind of the, the hood, if you will, and realizing, OK, this individual, you know, just like you mentioned, a good example, you know walk away from BlackRock, he managed a lot of money there. And now he knows the industry and he's creating a fund for that specifically. You know what I mean? Like then all of a sudden you start to be like, okay, this, this person knows what they're doing and this could be a really, really good offer. So it is really contextual and really diving deeper into kind of the, the micro things than, than just kind of staying at you know, top level. I want to talk a little bit about um, your, your family office connections. It is about building relationships in this kind of ecosystem. It is not, you know, hard selling. It is, it, it is just straight relationships. And then also aligning thesis, right? Yeah. My question, what I always find interesting is, is it is it is it knowing the family what uh, you know family offices what they're interested in, or is it more of understanding their overall goal and then finding certain deals that will help them achieve that goal, right? And what I mean by that is saying, hey, you know what? I know you are looking for oil and gas deal, but right now we also I know you want to get you know X Y Z and you know allocation toward real estate. Well, guess what? I've got a deal that's in real estate that can accomplish that goal that you're achieving, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and you kind of have to maybe educate them or maybe sell them a little bit and seeing how it can align with their ultimate goal within 10, 15, 20 years, whatever that looks like. Well, how do you, what, what does that look like in regards to navigating, you know, deal instead of just saying a hard no, like you mentioned kind of is, it is a sales, right? You have to let them know like how this can be beneficial for their, their thesis. Um, do, do you do a lot of that or is it more of just when they say, no, it's, that's it. It's very institutional, you know, process, et cetera, et cetera. Depends on how close you are with them. 
right? If you really know, because here's the truth. I've never sold anything to anyone that they didn't already want to buy. Mm-hmm. The same way you're hardly ever going to convince something, someone of something that they already disagree with, right? It's a losing, it's a losing game. Depending on the relationship that you have with the principal, then I think that depends on how much you can kind of push back and say, look, I know this isn't really in your thesis, but I do, I know you intimately, we have a relationship, I think you should look at this deal. Um, I think it is a matching game at its root of saying, what do you like to invest in? Here's a deal. And that's why those folks say, you know, the other thesis of being a placement agent is saying, I want 50 deals. I don't care if they're B or C or double A or I want all kind. I want it in manufacturing and blah, 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 so that I can better match with people and say, look, I have something that you will like. Please come look at it. That is an incredible waste of time, in my opinion. <laughs> From my perspective, it's okay. It's a relationship game. But it's sales from building relationships. Cold calls still work 100%. Anyone that doesn't say, that says that they don't is too lazy to make them because cold calls work even for building relationships. So finding, you know, you got to have good resources to say, okay, here's 10 family offices. They do like mezzanine debt. I have a mezzanine debt manager. Let's call all of them and say, hey, I got this thing. Do you want to buy it? No. Okay. Next. Like in some ways that does help from now, if they say, okay, yeah, that's cool. Let's get to know each other. Then you begin the relationship game, right? And you get to know each other. And the first call is a, so what do you like? What's the history of the firm? Like I had a call with the family office today, came from a cold call, called him on Monday, called me back. We set up an intro call. Didn't like the deals that I liked, referred me to somebody else that did. Cool. Right. And so you, it's, it's one of those, like, it's a, it's the blitzkrieg of going out and, and making the dials to, to create your relationships. You know, two years ago I had goose egg family office relationships and I was selling to my own network and realized this is not going to work. I want to redefine myself. I'm someone as of today, I'm someone that exclusively sells to family offices. I didn't know any family offices. I didn't know how it worked. That's what I did. And, you know, two years later, we're rocking and rolling, right? And so it's all about, you know, again, putting those those thoughts out there. Desire is the starting point of all riches. Like, what do you want to be doing? Who do you want to be working with? What's it going to look like? Begin to visualize that and then go make it happen, right? So I do think that it's a matching game between, look, I only look at, X, Y, and Z. If I, if I really know you, I can be like, look, Christian, this is a great deal. Like, I know you don't like seed round funding, but like, they're going to get bought out in a year and a half on a series A. Like, what do you have against this? If it's an early relationship, I take more of the softer approach. That's like, Christian, what do you like to invest in? Like, what, like, what are you looking at these days? And I have, you know, if we have something that matches, then great. But if not, you know, next time I'm in Boston, let's grab, you know, lunch or a beer kind of thing. Right. And so it's it's the long game. Right. It's about making your relationships, growing those relationships in a respectful manner that leads to referrals. I mean, the biggest deal I've ever done in my life came from a referral. And it was like, great. I, You know, so sometimes it's the hard work that leads to the easy work. Well said, man. And I get, I just always get so pumped up because you never know how it all comes into play. You know, you never know how the water falls and you're like, oh shoot, that's cool. You know, it's, it's just starts as long as you just start doing stuff, you know, cold calling and emailing, reaching out and connecting and taking coffees and playing ping pong with someone, you know, whatever it takes to just be able to build a relationship. Uh, and I appreciate you talking a little bit about that as well, because it, you know, it is every family office is so drastically different. I want to talk a little bit about you know, you and, and diving into this a little bit more micro clean, sustainable infrastructure and, you know, ESG kind of funds. Now, I've talked to some multifamily offices and they're saying there's a trend a little bit. And I want to get your perspective on it where, you know, f- family offices, because they don't want to pay the fees for the funds, they're going more direct deals. 
and they mm-hmm. may be straight, you know, just acquisition, whatever it may be, like whatever their approach is. But also there are some that are really reliant on funds because like you mentioned, they have an expertise, like specifically AI and generative AI, right? I mean, machine learning, like some of these families, they have no idea. They come from manufacturing. They have no idea, right? So they kind of rely on that that expertise and ex, you know, um, experience. Uh, what are you noticing when you – the heartbeat of your family offices? I, I would imagine it's probably contextual and it probably they, they all want exposure to some, some vertical of, of whatever. But are you noticing a trend one way or the other? Great question. 75, 80% of people as of recent, tell me about the deal. There have been a couple family offices. They're old school. They only do funds. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of crazy. I personally like a direct deal. If I'm a family office, I want to see what my money's going into unless it's like a can't miss or it's a fund two or three and it's a multi-billion dollar raise, right? We get back to first-time fund managers. First-time fund managers are far more successful raising money for deals, not their first fund, period. So I think a lot of people are such a fast world, right? And it's only getting faster. Attention span, the ability for an individual to process stuff, like it's speeding up. So the ability for a family office to say, okay, what's the asset class? Who's the manager? What's the deal? I think is a much more effective way to get money moving. Money hasn't been moving a lot in the last two years, right? Obviously we know that, but it's been a tough couple years to get anything done. Stuff that's getting done is clear. There's clarity around it. Blind pool funds, uh, I think there's a place for them, right? And it's in the larger capital race. Hey, we're going to raise a billion dollars and deploy it in this specific asset class with this A-class AAA manager that's got a great background. Okay. Other than that, first time, second time fund, hey, we're raising 30 million bucks to deploy in credit. It's like... Okay, tell me about the credit deal. And if I like it, I'll put five million into that. Like, so I find that it's it's easier to get to the stage of someone really going, that is cool. Let me look at that. The attention span is really what we're fighting. And so to, to get a deal in front of someone or a fund in front of someone that captures their attention, I think nine times, eight times out of 10, the deal is what's going to capture that attention versus the fund. If it's the fund, the background is going to capture the attention, right? The track record captures the attention that says, I want to be a part of that. Well, can you be at a direct deal? No, you can't. You can only be a part of this through our fund. Well, I want it anyways. I'll go through the fund. But the deal, I think, is is attractive. It's enticing. It's what I mean, I'm not alone by saying I'm a deal junkie. I mean, these family offices, that's all they that's all they look at. Right. And so it's much more fun to look at a deal, to think about, oh, it's not a blind pool lending fund. It's a mezzanine loan to an aviation company that's secured by four airplanes. Oh, OK, cool. Like it may have been the same thing that's in the fund, but that is is much more enticing to someone that gets there. I love aviation. Yeah, let me look at it. Versus, no, nah, nah, first time fund that's credit damage. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, especially for early fund managers, I think deals are is the way to go to get your plane off the ground. The plane. I like what you did there. The plane off the ground. Automatically. <laughs> Look at you, dude. Look at you. How you brought that around. Because uh, it's so interesting how you mentioned this, because I literally just had experience last week where someone sent me a slide deck. And I mean, it's just all this technical, you know, it was a beautiful slide deck. It was a great yeah. numbers metrics, but it's like all this technical babble. I had no idea. I had to get on the, you know, call with founder. I was like, what is this about? Can you just simplify it with like a five? I almost had to use chat GPT. Simplify this like a five-year-old, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I could just, you know, simpl- but then like you mentioned, I, I think a lot of founders, and, and this is where you come in handy, where you're able to simplify it to the, the, the investor and right. the investor and make it align. Say, hey, this, and again, like you just said, positioning it and posturing it correctly so that, hey, there is an alignment. It's just there's miscommunication or misunderstanding. 
And uh, I, I love what you said there um, and making it simple. I want to ask you also, I had a cool conversation with a, a friend of mine uh, from UAE. And, you know, he's deploying and he's very excited about a lot of emerging markets. You know, we, we're obviously yeah. we're seeing definitely China and, and Asia in, in general, you know, outside of the geopolitical situation. But I mean, they're a big powerhouse. A lot of um, VCs are raising capital for just you know, deploying capital in Asia, which is really awesome to see. India is coming up. It went from the you know top 10 largest economies to like the top five now. So they're 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 emerging. Obviously, we have Israel, Tel Aviv, where they've got a lot of technical stuff going on over there, tech, mm -hmm. deep tech stuff. And then, of course, UAE, a lot of money there. So they're really, really, you know, capital intensive in, in deploying a lot of this stuff. What I'm asking is when you're looking at these emerging markets, are you seeing a lot of family offices kind of hedging their bets, you know, with the U.S. and, and deploying it over uh, with with other emerging markets? And if so, where where are they gravitating toward? Where, where What are you noticing in regards to trends uh, and, and a heartbeat of, of your, your Rolodex? I'll speak from experience. Um... The United States is still by far and above the tier one market of the world. Oh, yeah. It's the safest place for capital. Depending on the asset class that you're looking at, a lot of people love solar, right? I raised money for Greenbacker, which has now become a $3 billion firm. I helped them raise their first three, $300 million at my first job when I was an internal in that job in California. They, no one would take a meeting, right? And now they're on with Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, and they're killing Right. But solar has gone from this in real estate terms, a really high cap rate asset class. Right. Good cash flows, low purchase price to now still good cash flows and a very high purchase price. So in real estate terms, that's cap rate compression. Right. For those assets, you got to go outside of the U.S. because the purchase price in, of a solar asset in Denver or in this tier one market is so high. You make in four or 5% on levered, which is like, what the hell is the point, right? And so for that kind of stuff, I've seen family offices doing deals in Pakistan, doing deals in Turkey, where it's like, where can, and now that's getting an eight or a 9% on levered yield on a solar deal. So I think it's not necessarily by desire, unless you have this bent of, hey, I love, emerging markets, right? And that probably comes from a founder that is from an emerging market, right? Or, or a family office that's from an emerging market, right? Um, hey, if you're from Singapore and you're based in the US, well, you're probably better at investing in Singapore companies than a guy from Boston, right? Um, so I think it, it still is comes back to, I mean, everybody knows family offices invest in the way that they made money. Like that's the, but I think too, if like family offices will invest geographically where they come from, right? So that's one aspect. The other is, if I really love an asset class, I am a solar nut, then I'm gonna look for a good deal anywhere, whether it's in Pakistan or Turkey. However, to be able to bring those same family offices a similar asset class, hey, you've been looking at solar, look at this other thing, it's structure very similar, it still has an ESG bent, and guess what? It's in the U.S. I go, wow, that's great because we've been having to deal with a laundry list of things to do a deal in Turkey, and we don't have to do that in the U.S., right? So that being said, you also have your hubs. Israel is getting a lot of attention right now for deep tech stuff, and I love that. They have some awesome companies coming out of there. Uh, I think China has a lot of political risks. I think Wall Street felt that. Two years ago, and this comes to my, my macro, you know, general finance brain sort of the world. But when they put the hammer on some of their Chinese companies, Wall Street was like, dude, I'm out. Like, you can't do that. And so I haven't I haven't seen anyone do an indie like an India based investment yet. And I'm very interested in that because that's a totally different political climate. I do not think that Wall Street and family offices are pumping money into China like some of us think they are. To other places, Singapore, Israel, yeah, there's definitely deals getting done. M Middle East, yes, for sure. There's a big burgeoning of Middle East companies coming to the U.S. and saying, let's get some of this money flowing over here. We've got 
endless pockets, but we need infrastructure. We need tech. Uh, I was speaking with a guy in the UK last week, and he knows a family office that's based in the UAE or uh, he's there in the they're in Dubai. Excuse me. Um, they're looking for infrastructure products in the U.S. that they can take to Dubai. Like, hey, you've got great stuff. We've got tons of money. Let's, you know, and so that's happening, right? Um, I don't, there's so many deals going on here though, right? Like in a month, I'm seeing a wearable type piece of healthcare technology that dampens tremors. That's cool. We're seeing, like there's, there's tons of deals that are US based in the tier one market that you don't have to deal with all of the other currency risk and this and that. Um, so yeah, sure, peanuts are going outside. But I think the majority of investments that are happening, which is not a ton compared to you know, 2018, 2019, the majority of stuff that's happening is happening in the tier one market of the U.S. still. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious on what you thought and if you think it's going to grow. And, you know, obviously we're still seeing a massive, strong, you know, trend in, you know, very conservative here in the U.S. and a lot of opportunity and a lot of upside still. And uh, I was just curious on the, uh, yeah, the these other emerging markets and there's just exciting stuff. And you're right. I haven't seen any money being deployed. I got a friend that just travel, a family office is traveling over to Asia. So it is interesting to see. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate this. And uh, this has been a really, really amazing conversation, Andrew. Uh, I just love your your story. I appreciate you just being authentic and vulnerable and sharing kind of the things that you had to go through personally to become the person you are now and the person you're, you're just striving to be every single day. And uh, also, I just appreciate, you know, you you just striving and in, in, in talking about the, the family office market. And, you know, your services that you provide with the founding, with the startups, with how to position it, their pitch deck, their finance, their valuations, all that fun stuff. And then also having these relationships with these family offices and navigating those waters and, you know, cold calling them and networking and, and chatting with them. And, you know, like I mentioned, just playing ping pong, whatever it is to build a relationship with them long term. Uh, for those that want to reach out to you that are listening to this podcast and say, hey, man, I, I need help you know, raising capital or maybe just kind of looking at their company on the back end and yeah. reviewing a few documents or whatever it is. How do they reach out to you, my man? Yeah, so uh, website is valsicapital.com. Uh, my email is Maroli, M-I-R-O-L-L-I at valsicgroup.com. That is my consulting company. And then for any uh, capital raising requests, is Andrew at Valsi Capital for, uh, I guess, split those for compliance purposes, but uh, the consulting company is Maroli at Valsi Group and uh, capital raising is Andrew at Valsi Capital. So uh, happy to reach out. You find me on LinkedIn, Andrew D. Maroli, uh, very active there. And uh, yeah, I would love to connect with the good people of the world. Awesome. And uh, to make it very simple for my audience, all those links and his emails are in the description below. So I would highly recommend just reaching out and, and saying hello, a quick hello and networking. Uh, and Andrew, I appreciate you making yourself available by putting your email down there as well. So I really appreciate that. Um, and guys, uh, I really appreciate you being on here, man. And I always love to ask my guests before I let you go fully. You know, you, you've done very well for yourself, very successful. And obviously there are still, you know, strives and, and you know, certain measurements you want to uh, accomplish but before you're 40, right? Uh, and we didn't dive into that, but I know there's goals and dreams, but you've done very well for yourself. And I, I want to ask you what, if you think about the young Andrew, right? And maybe even younger when, when you're, maybe your dad told you that, that, that amazing wisdom, uh, what insecurities did you have to overcome to become the Andrew you are now. Karen, what other people thought, first of all, and small dreams, like small dreams, I think plague people. The, the, they don't have big enough dreams for themselves, what they can accomplish, what they can do. Um, everybody says you can never plan your path or Steve Jobs said at a commencement speech, you never know how the dots connect until you look in reverse, right? And that's very true. Um, I'm glad I would tell myself, you know, don't be afraid of trying new things. And I'm glad that I didn't. So I've hopped all over the industry to finally find what my niche is. Um, but I would tell myself, like, have big dreams for yourself and and to also know yourself, right? Like there were times where, you know, I made 
60 grand in a day trading futures and then a day where I've lost 30 grand in a day trading futures, right? Which is like an age old story, right? But to know oneself of saying like, here's what I'm capable of, both good and bad, uh, and, and, and looking myself in the mirror at an earlier age would have led to, great, who do I want to be? Let's come up with some wild, big, crazy dreams for myself and, uh, and go after them. Well said, man. Well said, dude. And obviously you're still on that journey. And uh, man, guys, that is the president and CEO of Valsi Capital Group, the one and only Andrew Morelli. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Yavis Podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can.